Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. As the UK's death toll mounts, the government is criticised for not having brought in the lockdown earlier. But with the colossal economic cost of the lockdown growing, it's at the very same time under pressure to say how and when the lockdown is going to be lifted. This Sunday, we believe the Prime Minister is going to set out his plans to the whole nation. But will the government, that's the UK government in Westminster, want the same exit strategy as those in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland and what those governments put forward? What happens if they want different things? That's what we're going to take a closer look at today. And within that, we're going to look at whether the different health services of the four nations and the extent to which they run differently mean that they're faring differently in this crisis and what room does that give them for manoeuvring differently. Once you've listened to this episode, do seek out our sister podcast, as we're calling it, IFG Live. It brings you all our events, discussions, debates. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're getting inside briefing, or at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. There's a lot there to keep you entertained over the bank holiday. Let's get back to today's podcast. I'm delighted to be joined by Torkel Crichton, the Westminster editor of the Daily Record. Torkel, hi. Roland, how are you doing? I'm really, really good, thanks. Have you been back to Parliament yet? I have. I was in briefly to pick up a monitor so that my neck wouldn't snap craning over a laptop on Monday. And I went in yesterday to meet Keir Starmer at a social distance, of course. And boy, it's gone from plague ship to ghost ship. Uh, of course, it was one of these places where coronavirus seemed to spread faster than gossip for a while. Uh, but you go in now and it is empty. Uh, obviously, security the central, staff. central lobby is empty. The coffee rooms are empty. Yeah, security staff are there. Sergeants and arms staff are there. Uh, I encountered three journalists at a distance who, who are there because they're key workers, I guess, and have to do their job. But apart from that, it feels very, very uh, bereft. And it feels, you get that feeling that it's going to be like that for a long time, that we're going to be uh, doing virtual politics uh, for a long time to come. Back with us as well today is Jill Rutter, IFG Senior Fellow and Veteran of Number 10 and the Treasury. Jill, hi. Hiya. Great to have you with us. And we're also joined by another IFG Senior Fellow, Akash Pound, who leads all our work on devolution. Akash, hi. Hi, Bronwyn. Thanks for having me on. Great. Well, we're particularly going to talk about your report, Akash, that you've... um, that you've got out on this. So let's start with this area of devolved decision-making, as the jargon would have it. That's the decision-making that happens in uh, in Scotland, in Northern Ireland, in, in Wales, separately from what's happening uh, in the UK government in Westminster, and what's happened about the coronavirus response there. Akash, tell us about your paper this week, which looked at the um, what they've done so far, and the remarkably coordinated response that they've had, but the kind of problems that might come if they start taking a different a different approach from each other. Can, can you start by telling us just the basics, why there isn't just one UK approach? Sure. Well, I mean, the starting point is just that um, many of the, the public services that have been most affected by coronavirus, um, so including health, education, public transport, local government, social care, um, those are all devolved public services. Um, and so the primary responsibility for... Um, for responding to the coronavirus crisis um, in all of those areas does fall to the the three devolved governments. Um, Of course, some of the big um, economic um, responses uh, that that the the UK government has 
um, instigated. Um, so the, the, the furlough scheme, the, the support for the self-employed, tax changes and so on. Some of those big economic functions do operate um, on a UK-wide uh, basis. But a lot of the, um, a lot of the public health response um, including, crucially, the regulations to introduce the lockdown at the end of March. Those are powers that um, are, are exercised at the devolved level. So I think what's, what, what, what's ha- what happened and why I think people don't quite realise this is that there has been quite a high uh, degree of, of, of coordination. And so, of course, the lockdown was announced simultaneously um, across the UK, the regulations that brought it in were almost identical. The, the, the wording of, their, of, of those regulations was obviously closely uh, based on close consultation uh, between the four governments. But in the end, it is four separate lockdowns when you look at it in, in, in legal terms that just have so far um, come about through collaboration. Let me just press you on that point. I mean, if the UK government wanted to override uh, that room for independence and say, look, this is an emergency. Uh, we really need one central approach, and here it is. Could it constitutionally have used the nature of the emergency to override that devolved nature of these powers? Well, the Parliament at Westminster is sovereign. That is a, a crucial principle, a core principle of the Constitution, uh, notwithstanding devolution, that is still the case. So yes, in principle, had they chosen to go down that path, the, um, the UK government could have brought forward primary legislation or it could have, instead of the, the, the Coronavirus Act as passed, it, it, it could have introduced um, legislation that enforced a, uh, a, a uniform approach um, across the four nations of the UK, or indeed that could have conferred powers on UK ministers um, to impose regulations, um, notwithstanding the, 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 the um, views of the devolved government. So that is always a possible uh, possibility for uh, for Westminster, but that would of course been quite uh, would have been very very contentious to do that, and I think. Um, there wasn't actually any any reason to do that. Um, all the governments um, of the UK were uh, broadly on the same page. They recognised the need to to respond, um, of course, in in a very urgent fashion to the crisis. Um, and particularly in the early phase um, of the government response, I mean, we saw a a very high degree of of coordination and, and joint working between the governments. I mean, the initial coronavirus action plan that was published at the beginning of March um, was very unusual. I mean, that was a government document that actually had the four government um, logos on the front. It was a jointly produced thing. That doesn't happen very often. Um, the legislation as well, the Coronavirus Act, was sort yeah. of jointly drafted and, and agreed between the government. So that all worked pretty well, at least in that uh, early phase. All right. Well, we'll come on in a moment to uh, where we go from now on. But Torkel, I wondered if you could take us into um, Nicola Sturgeon's handling of the, of the crisis so far and uh, how you rate it. Well, the thing you have to remember about Nicola Sturgeon is that she's the most experienced politician in the land when it comes to pandemics, and possibly the most experienced leader in the land full stop because she's been first leader of Scotland for, for six years, and she was health secretary during the swine flu crisis in, in mm. late 2008-2009. So she came to the table with more experience of handling this kind of situation uh, than anyone else. 
how she's handled it from day to day has been pretty astute, I would say. Uh, she's uh, put aside uh, the, the, the SNP's main reason for being independent. She's laid that to one side. She's recognised, although some others have not, that this virus does not respect borders, that closing a border would only buy you one day. She doesn't have the power to close a border anyway. She realises the, the need, the, the, the public demand, actually, for politicians to cooperate in a situation like this when the chips are down. Uh, people don't want to see politicians squabbling. So she's put that to one side. Uh, and she's provided steady reassurance all the way through. Now, that isn't to say... She hasn't been playing politics all the way through. She has. Well, I was, I was, I was going to ask you exactly this. Because it's, uh, it's, it's rare to find uh, that, that uh, for any moment that she switched off her political antennae. Yeah, um, she's, she's political to her core. Uh, she's used that quite subtly uh, 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 and quite carefully. And she's done it, yes, in terms of daily timing. She comes out at 12 o'clock or 12.30, gives us a daily update of the Scottish uh, figures. And then quite regularly, not ever so often, quite regularly, slips out uh, a little piece of advice or guidance or thinking uh, way before the Whitehall machine can grind itself into gear uh, uh, and agree to send out the same kind of advice two or three days later. So she's done this on uh, face masks, uh, or rather not on face masks, but on face coverings, she said, which everybody took as a signal of her jumping the gun. She was actually... You know, UK government ministers had exactly the same advice as Nicola Sturgeon had. They share the scientific data is shared between the scientific officers and the medical officers of each nation. They meet regularly, as we are doing now on, on video conference or on, or on telephone call. So she simply read out what the, the marginal benefits that face masks might have uh, in order uh, to... But it looked as though she was... She was uh, beating the UK government to it. Yeah, and it even, even, if she, even if she's... Um, uh, coordinating the, the policy. She's uh, she's not coordinating the communication. She's, no. do, she's doing the best to get her own out there first. But you know what, Bronwyn? Beating the UK government that day was just a Brucey bonus. That was the icing on the cake because what she did by talking about face masks that day was throw a dead cat on the table in Scotland because the very same day, John Swinney, her education secretary, announced that a, a controversial review of Scottish education, which is failing on the SNP's watch, that that review would now be delayed until after the 2021 election. Nicola Sturgeon went into the 2016 election saying, judge me on education. Voters will go into the 2021 election, Scotland, unable to judge Nicola Sturgeon on education because that review has been kicked into the long grass. Now, the government in World War II government was able to produce the beverage report under wartime <laughs> uh, circumstances, but we can't produce an education review uh, uh, under this crisis. Of course, nobody noticed that because everybody was talking about uh, face masks or face coverings <laughs> and whether Scotland had done it before, England or not. That well, argument for, for, for the Sturgeon was, 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 a, was a bonus because what she done is divert attention away from her own domestic yeah. woes. So well, she, very adroit. she played it very and it's, it, Yeah, and, and, and it's something that the IFG has been um, writing and talking quite a bit about, about the actual performance of the uh, devolved governments in, in running public services yeah. over the 20-something years. Just, just, just briefly in parenthesis, uh, do you think she'd want to be judged on the performance of health in Scotland? Um. Nobody wants to be judged on this because it's a crisis, you know, that you know, nobody can really. No, I meant, I meant more. I meant more generally. Um, health in Scotland is is no be no better, no worse than health in England. To mm. be honest, uh, 
the comparisons can be made. There are just as many deaths in care homes in Scotland as there mm. are in England. The the level of testing is at the same level or behind England. Uh, but what you will be judged on, I guess, is, are not these stats, and that's the, in the wrong run. The tallies will, will be made up. But in terms of, and this is the game she is really playing, is the game of trust. Who do you trust the most? And her calm, plain, open, transparent presentation compared to Boris Johnson's kind of slight bumbling, uh, not so sure, mixed messages coming from Westminster. She thinks she's won that game. Well, thanks for that. Jill, do you want to pick up this point? I mean, which is, is there real room for divergence between the four nations um, or, or just really is it presentational? It was very interesting listening uh, the other week, um, the chief medical officer of Scotland, the acting chief medical officer uh, of Scotland was giving evidence alongside all the CMOs from the other um, devolved and Professor Chris Whitty to the Science and Technology Committee, Greg Clark's committee. Um, one of the points he was making, he was making that, you know, there might be a case for a divergence. I think Talkwell was giving an example that if infection rates are genuinely quite different in different places, you might really want to phase the lockdown differently or reintroduce restrictions. But one of the things he thought was actually a barrier to divergence, which I thought was quite interesting, was that it would undermine the sort of consistency of message and people wouldn't know what they could do in different places. So he, his general view, I thought, was quite interesting in terms of the advice, presumably going into Nicola Sturgeon, uh, was that you really, really wanted wanted to stay coordinated if you possibly could, because that was actually a much easier public health message to be giving out if it was consistent across the four uh, four areas. I mean, Akash has made clear, you know, there are variations, there will be variations. So there are some things where you actually have to vary. Because if you look at things like school terms, school terms are different in Scotland to the terms that there are in England. So when you're taking decisions about phasing school returns, that would, you would think, play out differently depending on whether you're talking about taking an earlier summer holiday when people come back. You know, coming back in August is a different issue in England where most school teachers and most children expect to have August off than it is in Scotland where I think uh, school children tend to come back quite a bit earlier. So I think there are sort of areas of sort of legitimate difference. I think the real danger will come if you get to a situation that we haven't had really yet, which is where the four nations effectively spin out by taking very different interpretations of the same science. All the chief medical officers are observers on SAGE, so they all go and hear all that advice that is coming to the British government and then can relay it back to their respective first ministers. But I think, uh, I think one of the things that would show tension would be if you got, for example, the impression that one of the governments was possibly playing faster and looser with public health than the other ones were going to. So if you saw England, say, unlocking faster, maybe because it's sort of prioritising the economy more than the other devolves and people were then saying, well, actually, they're all getting the same advice, but they're taking very different conclusions from it. Yeah, and that doesn't have to be mischievous uh, or, or particularly political. I mean, for, you know, we've got two points running here, really. It seems to me one of them is that the regions of the country are very, are very different. You've got London, which is very, very densely populated, and you've got parts of the country, including parts in, in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, that are really not very densely populated at all, and the rate of transmission is going to be very different. And then you've got, Jill, which you've just brought in, the economic uh, 
costs. So the government's really looking at, at two things, isn't it, or aren't they? One is how to le- ease the lockdown in ways that are not going to increase the transmission rate very much, and, and they drop at garden centres and golf and things. But there, there may be parts of the country where that's much easier to do. And then you've got trying to do something about the parts of the economy that have really been badly hit with perhaps a higher rate of uh, a, a higher risk of um, increasing transmission if, if, if those are eased up on. And that might not, again, not, not apply to every region. It might apply most of all to London and the South East. So I'm very interested in what Torquil's view is of the sort of acceptability of divergence where people seem to be taking different judgments yeah. on the same evidence. Torquil, what do you, what, what do you think? Hmm? You've got a wonderful tension here where in the last couple of weeks, Sturgeon has been pulling uh, pulling the Westminster and the UK ahead. You know, she's been ahead of, of them in communicating that message and getting the message out of it, looking lockdown. And now when it's come to the actual bit where the decision has to be made, she's become the drag anchor. She's the cautious one compared to Boris Johnson. And of course, fear rules everything because nobody wants to be the politician who gets this wrong. So the caution will always win. They've all been listening. There is a remarkable consensus across the UK medical and science advice on how to approach this, uh, on, on whether it's on testing or, or masks or whatever. So nobody wants to do So they will try and get consensus where they can. And I think, I think as a result of that, Sturgeon's caution, tweaking Johnson's tail, so to speak, I think we might see a very, very uh, cautious approach on Sunday night. When you find it comes re- to, to talk. It's a really interesting point you touch on, uh, talk about that, because uh, consensus doesn't mean that they're all right. I mean, we might look back in <laughs> retrospect and think they were all too cautious, yeah. as mm-hmm. you said, but, but you know, all terrified of being the politician who got this 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 wrong and actually uh, competing with each other to slow down. Whereas, you know, when we look back on this, we might think, might not, uh, that, that it was time to to ease up. I mean, Akash, you put a lot of weight in your paper on the kind of future consensus. You think it, you think it's going to keep going? I'm not sure I would I would I would make such a, a strong prediction. I mean, I think as as we've been discussing this this is a really crucial moment now. Um, the 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 second set of required um, assessments are being undertaken at the moment by the four governments as to whether the lockdown should stay in place, whether there's any scope to to release them. Um, and um, we'll have the big announcement um, on Sunday, of course, from from Boris Johnson. And between now and then, I imagine there's going to be a huge amount of intergovernmental activity at various levels and attempts to to hold together a four nation approach. But there's there's no guarantee that 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 will be the outcome. I mean, I think one of the one of the points that we we do talk about in the paper is that. Um, as 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 you've just been uh, discussing, um, there are potentially some legitimate reasons why um, so, some degree of differentiation might take place, um, and that wouldn't be without international precedent. I mean, several other uh, uh, countries, federal countries like Australia, Germany, regional regionalized countries like Italy and Spain have had uh, varying restrictions. Um, in place, both on the way in as the crisis uh, began, and now to some extent on the way out as 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 restrictions are are being eased. So it wouldn't be um, completely without parallel anywhere else. Um, and and yeah, if we look ahead from now, I mean, it is it is a requirement of the law. It's a requirement of the regulations that introduced the the lockdown that each of the four governments separately assess. 
um, the need, the ongoing need for the lockdown restrictions um, and whether whether they are necessary to protect public health and prevent the spread of the infection within their nation. So if the underlying public health risk does diverge between uh, the four nations, then um, I mean, the, the legal position is that they ought to uh, potentially lift restrictions sooner than than other places. So the, the evidence might might lead us that way. I mean, there's specific considerations in Northern Ireland as well, where there's been attempts to, to have some degree of an uh, all Ireland um, coordination as well. There's been close cooperation between the health services and the, the CMOs of from the Northern Ireland and Irish governments. So if Ireland, who've also set out their exit strategy in quite a bit of detail in the last few days, start to move in a um, significantly different direction, you know, that, that might raise the question about um, on some of this stuff, should, should Northern Ireland align uh, with Dublin rather than Westminster? I now want to turn, and don't go away, uh, I want to turn to the question of the differences in the health services across the UK and in the devolved nations and how much the differences um, show there. And to guide us through this area, which is often not very well understood, um, we are bringing in another IFG senior fellow, someone who knows more about it than anyone, I think, Nick Timmins, who has written about it extensively, not least in his excellent book, uh, The Five Giants. Um, It's only a year since we gave you a a relaunch for that, uh, Nick, so I can plug it again. Um, Nick, hi, very good to have you with us. Good to be here. Good. Could you, again, sketch out for us the sort of the, the basic, the, the building blocks of this, of how different the health services are in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland? Well, health is genuinely devolved. Um, so it operates very differently. I mean, there's a number of phases. I mean, even after 1948, you know, Scotland operated somewhat differently to the way the English Welsh NHS did. Uh, but those differences got hugely magnified by devolution in the 1990s. Uh, because you saw in England uh, under Labour the development of the sort of choice and competition approach to trying to reform the NHS with the introduction of more market-like mechanisms. Uh, and Scotland went, uh, went absolutely the other way, so back towards a more managed system. Well, I used to joke, it makes the Scots very cross, but I used to kind of joke that, the, that after devolution, the Scots set out to prove that they could make the pre-1991 version of the NHS work well, uh, whereas England was doing doing the um, choice competition market-like mechanisms, payment by results, all those sorts of incentives and punishments and penalties to try and make the thing work. And for a long period, in over the 2000s, and particularly after Andrew Lansley's act, I mean, if you... Politically, the Scots almost defined their health services as being not England. We had none of that nasty privatisation down there. We don't sell all this stuff out. Uh, So they diverge very spectacularly, though interestingly that's beginning to change and I'll come back to that in a moment. But one of the really big frustrations has been you've got these, you have these two national health services, which are essentially at the high level the same thing, you know, treatment according to need, Uh, you you don't pay, uh, and there's this natural experiment going on about whether direct management works better than market-like mechanisms. And it's been almost impossible to do the comparisons because it turns out that uh, almost everything is counted slightly differently. Even waiting times are counted slightly differently. So there have been a couple of very brave hopes to have a go at this by uh, 
Mick Maysville and School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine and Gwynne Bevan at the LSE. Uh, and they did two bites of this, one around about 2010 or so, and another one a bit later. And it turned out that it had become harder to make the comparison because the way things were measured mm. had changed. And I've always suspected part of the reason this has been so difficult is that, is that the politicians on all sides of the border have been terrified of the answer. Well, they don't want the comparison. They don't want the comparison because they're frightened of what the answer might be. Because, you, you know, because in England, uh, it clearly costs something to run these market-like mechanisms. More contracting, pay, pay lawyers a lot more. We don't really know how much it costs, but it clearly costs something. Uh, and that's worth it if you get a better result. Uh, but the English politicians were always rather frightened of discovering that maybe the Scots with their direct management without those costs were doing better. But equally, the Scots were equally frightened that if it turns out that all these privatisation and market mechanisms work, we don't want to know that answer either. So it's all been very difficult. Uh, more recently, there's been more of a coming together in the sense that, although Andrew Lanz's act was the sort of apogee of faith in these market-like mechanisms, in practice, the English NHS has been moving away from them uh, and at an increasingly fast pace. Uh, so that while the legislation hasn't changed, the actual way England is operating has changed quite a lot. We've got these drives towards these integrated care systems uh, where the importance of tariff is being reduced. Uh, the, found, the difference between foundation trusts and non-foundation trusts is shrinking away. So in a funny way, England is slowly moving a bit closer to where Scotland has been for a long time now. Yeah. But I just want to, in operation, just get at how separate they are, really. So if you've got a patient near the border in an emergency, does that patient get moved over the border? If, um, you know, does Scotland have to have every speciality of every kind of kind of, say, cancer treatment or mm. uh, treatment for unusual uh, illnesses? Or, could, you know, can they send people yeah. to England? England? How does that, how well, does that work? There, there is some cross-border trade in both ways uh, between Scotland and England, but it's pretty small. I mean, you know, the Scottish Health Service has pretty every, every much specialty you want. And so there is some transfer. There's a lot more between Wales and England, uh, particularly in the north of Wales, because there are very few large hospitals in the north of Wales. And there's some transfer, again, both ways, but mainly from Wales to England in the south as well. Mm. Uh, and, there's much, and, much more yeah. movement there. In Scotland, yeah. there is some, but it's, it's, it's relatively limited. Yeah. And Northern Ireland, different again? Well, Northern Ireland is sui generis. Uh, it always has been. It, it, it has a joint budget for health and social care, uh, which you'd think would make the whole thing work much better, but appears not to. It shows that joint budgets on their own don't solve anything. So so Northern Ireland has always been rather separate to the way the, way the rest yeah. of the UK is run its health service. All right, so you, you take that whole structure... Yeah. ...the point of use, but the structural yeah. organisation yeah. is very different. All right, so you take that whole structure you've just described for us and you take it into the coronavirus mm. crisis. Yeah. Um, is there anything we can say about um, how the separate structures have handled some of the big tests to this, the expansion of uh, intensive care within existing hospitals, the famous procurement problems and so on? Yeah. I don't think there's anything you can say at this point. Uh, I mean, if you... I thought you'd say that. <laughs> if, you, if you look back at Andrew Lance's act and what it did you would say, well, absolutely, it did not help. It does not help because it fragmented the way the English NHS mm. works much more. But while it clearly didn't help, I'm not sure if there's any evidence so far you can say that it's actually damaged the response, if you see what I mean. Uh, partly because there has obviously been an element of command and control in England anyway in trying to deal with all the problems that we're 
fully well aware of. And all the reconfiguring, spectacular reconfiguring, the way hospitals work has been done very locally by clinicians and managers. It's been done within the hospital with, you know, the expertise in the hospital being used to do that. So, I mean, you know, all decent sized hospitals have infection control experts and they're on the staff, you know, they are they're consultants who do that. Mm-hmm. So all that's been done very locally. So I'm not sure that you can see any very clear impact of the act making it worse. I mean, it clearly won't have helped. Has it actually done any damage? I think it's too soon to say. Talker, how does this play out in the in the politics of it? And particularly when people begin to talk about hospital funding and funding for health service going forwards from, from here, uh, is this something that people think is really just down to the Scottish government, um, you know, if they want more spent on health services from now on? Well, for years, uh, despite health being devolved, uh, clearly as with education, for years, Scott still blamed the failures on health, uh, on health service in Scotland. They blamed that on Westminster, very successful communication strategy by the SNP. But of course, the SNP have been in power now for more than a decade. Uh, so their track record was, was before coronavirus, the track record was beginning to catch up with them on, on health. There have been several big, embarrassing uh, failures on health, on the, the brand new Queen Elizabeth Hospital in Glasgow uh, had, had a terrible track record of, of, of hygiene, of failure. Uh, this new sick kids hospital in Edinburgh couldn't be opened, lies empty still, uh, and temporary hospitals being built all over the country because it wasn't up to standard. Uh, waiting times were bad, but all that was kind of bouncing off, deflecting off Sturgeon because of the the patriotic nationalist uh, drive that 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 that, that she attracts, uh, but that would that record that failure in, in health, given a good opposition, would have caught up with her in 2021. Of course, 2021 now will be about getting over coronavirus, and of course that perennial Scottish question, independence, that'll come up again. But on on health, they've got a 13 billion pound budget. You know, about a, a third of. Of a quarter, a quarter of the of the Scot- of Scottish government's entire budget is spent on health, uh, and the, their track record, as with every government, their track record on health was beginning to catch up with them. But of course, coronavirus has, has obliterated all that. We're in, mm. we're in crisis mode now. Joe, what do you think is going to happen um, to uh, the arguments about about funding of health? So I think the. Uh... The Prime Minister's uh, sort of, uh, you know, uh, tribute to the NHS that he gave immediately after emerging from hospital uh, when he recovered, uh, I think makes it extraordinarily difficult to envisage anything other than the NHS. And I think, interestingly, we haven't really talked about it, social care. And I think it's very interesting to see how that's playing out in the different devolves as well. Um, but I think it's very difficult to resist any funding requests. I think the really interesting question, some people are already floating this, is whether the Chancellor has already signalled that we might have to think about tax a bit differently in the post-coronavirus era, has already signalled that the self-employed might be asked to pay more, is whether people revive the idea that's been knocking around uh, of an NHS levy or some special tax to make paying for an NHS, uh, a settlement for social care, more palatable. And I think that's the really interesting thing about whether we see the sort of hypothecated tax Uh, rearing its head again. Nick McPherson, who came to IFG to break all Treasury orthodoxy and argue the case that we really, really ought to have a dedicated NHS tax, whether given I think governments are going to have to write bigger checks to both NHS and social care, 
Uh, I think that's going to happen. One of the things that I think has been very striking, and I'm not sure whether Nick and Talkwell think this has happened, Akash thinks it's happened in the devolved as well, is how much the message in England from Matt Hancock has focused on the NHS rather than on protecting social care. And I just wondered whether that had played out any differently in Scotland or indeed in Northern Ireland, whereas Nick says health and social care are, are all integrated. Yeah, well, I think that, that on that specific point, oh, if, yeah, should I take that specific point? I mean, I, I think we made this made this point actually in our in our paper that um, that was one um, immediately notable difference um, between the the five tests for the exit strategy that the UK government set out, um, which of course are very light on detail and so on, but do talk about the NHS and its capacity, whereas in the Scottish government's much more detailed decision making framework. Um, the language is much more often about the health and care system. And I do think, I mean, Torquil, you may, you, you, you may have a different view, but I do think that reflects um, that um, more joined up approach to, to, to policy across those two areas um, in general and the way that that then feeds into um, decision making about coronavirus. Um, I mean, the other point I wanted to make, um, just to go back, Bronwyn, to your question about um, the extent to which these are genuinely separate um, health systems. I mean, I think it's very interesting, actually. There's, there's probably sort of a PhD to be written on it or something, but that the idea of the NHS... Um, it has a it has an existence as a as a concept as a set of values and principles as a secular religion as people often say um, that does extend across the UK even though in terms of the institutions we have four very separate systems as Nick has laid out with separate accountability separate budgeting um, and and I think I, I, I think that does lead to confusion about um, who is responsible for what and in, in this particular crisis I also think it's been very interesting to see how um, how Matt Hancock um, has it seems to me tried to kind of play a role as um, Secretary of State for Health for the whole UK, um, which is very unusual. I mean, for most intents, to most intents and purposes, Department of Health is an English department. We have NHS England, and that's the responsibility of of the Health Secretary. But um, you know, the testing target has been UK wide. There's been attempts to do UK wide procurement and so on. I mean, that stuff is quite unusual. The the, the policy of health and social scale care in Scotland before coronavirus was t- moving towards integration. It has been tried out in various council areas and various, various health board areas to deliver council social care services and NHS health board services through one combined unit. And there's been varying degrees of success and varying degrees of institutional resistance to that. But the revolution is is happening. In terms of the NHS, and in fact, in terms of coronavirus, this what this coronavirus episode crisis ha- has done, uh, it's kind of exposed the cabling of devolution, hasn't it? We're beginning to see how the different governments work, great, connect and disconnect with each other. It's uh, And because it's a, a, a health, political, economic problem that does not respect borders, you can't shut this thing out of your country, whether you're Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. They're forced to cooperate. And we're, we can see day to day how that cabling works, how the attention works institutionally and how it works 
between individuals uh, and dare I say it, you're getting a, a Whitehall or certainly a Westminster, finally a Westminster appreciation that things are done differently in different parts of the country and you're beginning to see the counterweight of the devolved uh, governments, Sturgeons, first of all pushing and now pulling, urging caution. You begin to see that, that the balance uh, change in, in the way politics is done in Britain. It's, it's quite interesting. Of course, after all this, after all this, Sturgeon will have to prove the case for independence all over again because... That is a it, whole separate subject, yeah. which we'll come back to, but we haven't heard a lot of it recently, and I think for good good, good reason. It doesn't have the um, oxygen of attention uh, behind it at the, at the moment. Um, we will come back to that, but not today. Let's just finally, as we begin to uh, get to the end, um, talk about Sunday when Boris Johnson will say whatever it is he is going to say. Uh, talk of the Prime Minister got a ticking off from the Speaker for saying he was going to set this out on Sunday, in other words, not in Parliament. Do you think it matters? Well, I need to get a ticking off from my Presbyterian cousins for doing it on the Sabbath as well. Uh, it probably, in terms of democracy, of course it matters. You should be going towards put to Parliament first. I find the timing of it, I must say, Odd, it's a bank holiday Sunday evening. You'd think the, the sensible thing to do in government would be to digest the arguments, the facts, the stats over the weekend and arrive fresh on Monday morning. But I guess, I don't know, I've often misunderstood the, the communication strategy of this particular dining street. So maybe Sunday night is the right night to do it. I don't know. Yeah. And Jill, uh, you, you've written uh, for us uh, um, and been very... Um, outspoken on the government's communication strategy. Um, Sunday night communication? Well, they clearly want to speak direct to the nation and don't want to have the inconvenience of questioning to get in the way of the core message. So I think the really interesting thing is how much of this strategy is briefed out beforehand. So do we start seeing uh, stories appearing, as we have in previous occasions in the papers all the time, about what's going to be in the announcement so it doesn't become... Uh, become news. But I, I can understand the Prime Minister's reasons for saying, I'm not ready this week. I think he's on pretty, uh, pretty lame territory, really, for defending doing it on Sunday night rather than Monday morning, because it's quite hard to see with that degree of warning, can anything change on Monday? Because that seems to be one of the signals we're getting from Downing Street is that there are some instant changes. You feel that if all they're saying is you can go out and exercise twice in a day, the weather's going to be miserable on Monday, on Sunday and Monday, at least down here. Not sure what it's like in Scotland, Torquil. But uh, you sort of think he can't really have that good an excuse for not waiting, uh, not waiting 16 hours and doing it Parliament at, uh, when it reassembles on Monday afternoon, unless he just doesn't want to face questioning. Quite interesting stuff about how reluctant Boris Johnson is to make statements in Parliament that people have been saying that he doesn't seem to have quite the passion for it that maybe characterised his predecessors, who was almost always making statements in Parliament. Yeah, and just briefly, Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, has set out seven principles for the government to adhere to. Does that mean anything? Is that really a useful test? I think, uh, I think what the Prime Minister will know uh, from his experience of Prime Minister's questions this week, which I thought was really interesting, his first encounter with Keir Starmer is that he has to be very careful with absolutely everything he says because one of Keir Starmer's most effective moves was to take Boris Johnson's words and use them against him. So I think there'll be a lot more care in number 10 going into precisely what the Prime Minister says. But I think the other thing that he will be doing, number 10 I'm sure will be taking the Starmer principles and sort of working out you know, where are they responding to those, where are they ticking those off, 
and where are they not? Because they know that next Wednesday they're going to face another forensic grilling from Keir Starmer on any emissions. So I think uh, I think mm-hmm. getting those out ahead is actually quite a useful way of shaping uh, how Number Ten will approach this. Keir, Keir Let- Starmer has proved himself to be a human staple gun, hasn't he? He just nailed Boris Johnson uh, with with very precise questions on Wednesday. Yeah, and Nick and Akash, anything in particular you're looking for on the Sunday night statement? Well, I think um, again uh, in in the earlier phase of the crisis, what was what was really striking was when we had statements by the prime minister, followed almost immediately by very similar, sometimes almost verbatim, uh, statements uh, by the by the first ministers of the devolved nations. Um, it doesn't feel like we're in that phase of very tight uh, coordination and communications anymore. But um, I'll certainly be looking out for what exactly the um, the devolved leaders um, say following the the prime minister's statement. Okay, and Nick, I, th- I think what will be in- one of the things. Boris has said since he came back, is he will be very transparent about the options and about how we do all this. It will be very interesting to see whether Sunday does sort of set out, not necessarily an absolute roadmap, but, you know, this, this is the way, these are the ways we could go, and we maybe need a debate of some sort about which of them we adopt at what point in the light of, A, what evidence there is, B, what we will be starting to learn from other countries as they've eased lockdown, you know, what does that do to the reproduction rate? It's very interesting to see whether he just says we're going to do this or whether he says these are the options, they're all very difficult choices, let's talk about what might work well. And as we've begun to realise there's really quite a lot of detail that might have to be added to this, if not on Sunday night, then at some point what you do about transport, what you do about, you know, keeping people safe at work, what you do about employers' liability and so on. I'm sure all, all, all this will come to may, may, maybe next week uh, to bring you all that. But right now we have to wrap up this week's Inside Briefing. So my great thanks to Talkwell Crichton. Thanks for joining us, Talkwell, Jill Rutter, Akash Pound, and Nick Timmins. Always good to have you with us. And thank you all for listening too. Inside Briefing will be back next week. And there's going to be a huge amount of new publications and events on our IFG Live uh, sister podcast or the publications discussed there. So do check out the latest episode in which our colleagues Kath Haddon and Raphael Hogarth are joined by David Allen Green, the legal commentator, to discuss the use of emergency powers Make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one. And you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. And you can find all our content at our website, instituteforgovernment.org.uk. So until next week, enjoy the bank holiday, which has, I think, at least one day of good weather in it before the rare clouds gather. See you next week. <laughs>